Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 45. In last episode, we talked about a lot of the tension between the two parties and about the lack of trust that has built up between these two sides and some of the causes of that lack of trust. And we primarily focused on conspiracy theories and how the conspiracy theories, especially on the right, lead to the right being completely unable to trust or engage with the left because of how they view them, in large part because of these conspiracy theories. And we really enjoyed that. But we felt like because we spent so much time on that, we weren't able to cover so much more. And so we want to go into a little bit more and this time focus on why liberals have a hard time trusting or engaging with conservatives. To begin with, I want to point out one broad concept that most of you have probably heard of, the idea of an echo chamber. An echo chamber is a place where, you know, and physically speaking, an echo chamber is anywhere where you can speak and you hear your echo, right? An echo chamber is, you can design a place labeled an echo chamber that's, that's particularly good at that. One of the interesting trends that sociologists and people who study politics have noted recently is that people appear to be more and more put into echo chambers. And in comparison to, to past times where you've got, you know, five or six major newspapers and everybody reads them or is vaguely, at least vaguely familiar with them, right? There's a few channels, everybody watches all of them or at least some of them. Then everybody has a shared culture, a shared set of ideas from which they base their their claims and then they go from there. But it's become much more fragmented at this point and it's become much more catered. If you want to read news about a very specific thing from a very specific perspective, at this point in time, you can find it. And you can find it on the internet on from anywhere from a, a major website to a fringe website. And you can you can cater the information that you receive. Now, a lot of people believe that that's the heart of the problem, that that's the problem, that it's a technological issue that as we've developed, we've become more fragmented and more isolated and have easier access to the things that confirm our own bias and therefore seek those things and so on. And no doubt that plays some role. As you go and you watch your particular news stations, you'll find that they, they, they likely, if you haven't chosen deliberately otherwise, they likely confirm your biases. They tell you what you want to hear. They demonize people who disagree with you. They don't give any credit. They never back down or, or back off of their statements. They claim they were misunderstood when they're wrong and so on. And you'll get lots of videos today where you can go and you can look up and you can see someone like, uh, you, you can see a liberal or Republican and you, where you can see a liberal who goes to a Trump rally, finds the least well-informed, most racist person there, asks them a series of questions and says, this is Republicans, right? And then you get, you get the opposite. You get the Republican who goes to New York, who goes on the streets and starts asking people basic questions about the way government functions. And they have no idea and goes, look, this is liberals. And Republicans point at the dumb liberals and they laugh. And liberals point at the dumb Republicans and they laugh. And, and both of them have a good time, right? They, they walk away feeling more justified in their own beliefs and in their own skewed perspective of the world. And to begin with, let me just point out that that is, to do that, I think is an evil thing to do. I think to do that is a dishonest, misleading cowardly thing to do, to go and define the worst in a group of people, or even the worst in a single individual, and to act like that is representative of the whole, mm -hmm. is a terrible thing to do. 
And people who do that should stop. And people who watch those things should stop. Because the consequences are not merely that you have a good laugh at someone else's expense. This is not mere comedy. The result of this is that we have a natural tribalism already. You have the people you identify as your kind. You have your group. Again, we've, we've mentioned this before. This is, not, this is not on racial lines. That's what people have argued, that, that your tribe is people that look like you and act like you. That's not true. Your tribe is the people you generally engage with, which may have a tendency to parallel that, but it's not that specifically. You have this natural tribalism, and that natural tribalism makes you uncomfortable around things you're unfamiliar with. That should come as no surprise. (laughs) When you're in the unknown, some people really love it, right? Some people have a natural desire to be with new things and experience new things and be in the unknown. But even then, they're going to be less comfortable. They they just like the thrill of it and things. And it's really easy to take that discomfort and to turn it into fear and distrust and hate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And things like those videos Dan's talking about lead right into that and they help turn that discomfort into fear into into hate into disgust into i mean in in many ways in many ways what what those what those videos do and what the echo chambers do not just those videos specifically but these echo chambers in general is is it's a it's an easy way to dehumanize your opponents and we're talking about both sides here because both sides do it Everyone has the opportunity now, because of technology, as Dan said, to live in that echo chamber. You don't have to, but it's very easy to stay there. And when you're there, life is very easy because your ideas aren't being challenged. Your ideas are being supported and being nurtured and being praised for having those ideas, which everyone enjoys. You know, right. everyone enjoys all of these things. So it's incredibly right. You're regularly patted on the back for it. Mm-hmm. But... But the price for all of that is the language of these echo chambers makes it such that the ideas of anyone who's not in your echo chamber become so estranged as to dehumanize them. You can't even comprehend a rational explanation for why they believe what they do. You can't comprehend why an honest-to-goodness human being would believe the opposite from what you believe. And that's how you reach where we are today. And and that's part of what we are talking about with with the conspiracies is that the conservatives are so convinced that the left is just completely insane that the only explanation is that there are all of these conspiracies that justify right. them behaving so insanely. Because otherwise, why would so much of the world be working against what is so clearly the correct answer? Right. It, it gives them, as we, we said in the last episode, it makes them either stunningly ignorant, dangerously ignorant, or working with actual malice. And, and, that's, and that's not just the way Republicans read liberals. That is the way liberals read Republicans, right? They look at the way the policies and they say, the only reason you'd support this is you are you are incredibly naive to the world, dangerously so, or you are deliberately evil. And either way, you are a problem. And there's no reasoning with you. There's no there's no help for that that category. You have to just fight them. You can't reason with those people, you can't work with those people, you can't compromise with those people. They are, as Brad was saying, less than human. 
Campaigns that make people less than human are common throughout history. The most obvious examples are in regards to race. But in every war, you'll see bits of it. You dig into the history of, of World War II and you listen to the way Americans talk about the Japanese or the way that Americans talk about uh, Germans mm-hmm. and the, the, way, the way Europeans talk about each other, right? <laughs> Their neighbors they share a border with them. And in around wartime, all of those things are escalated. And often it's deliberately escalated. It is. No, it, it is deliberately escalated. And propaganda is not intentionally produced to literally dehumanize them. Lots of times they'll have caricatures portraying the enemy as as animals or as as monsters, often, you know, goofy monsters, but still monsters in order to distance themselves distance those enemies from humanity, which is also why if you look at these time periods and, and how the soldiers referred to the enemy, it would always be, there would always be nicknames. You know, there there's different slurs, names, yeah. slurs for the enemy that once again are, are an effort to dehumanize the enemy because it's hard to, kill a, it's hard to kill a person. It's hard to reach a point where you, where there's no compromise. You know, you've, you can hear stories about World War One, where where these soldiers are fighting for no reason and they're stuck in these trenches and they quickly reach a point where they stop hating the enemy and they start hating those who put them there, which is why you have things like the Christmas truce where – where they they stopped fighting and played sports together and ate and drank yeah. with the enemy because they realized these people are not our enemy. These people are just people like us who just want to go home, but they can't. And it literally stopped them from fighting, at least temporarily, because there was that breakdown in propaganda, in demonization. And that's exactly why we're... Uh, we're recording this episode and the last episode because because that's my dream is for is for the two parties to realize wait a second these people are not my enemy my enemy is someone else entirely and as long as i keep fighting these people we're never going to get anywhere it's true and it's it's why so much of politics feeds itself and just makes it makes Politics makes politics worse as it's practiced today and as in the way that most people engage in it. As we said, we were going to talk specifically about the bias of liberals here in this episode because we'd focused on conservatives. Conservatives are shifting, shifted with the election, with COVID-19 towards conspiracy theories more so than they ever have in the time that we've been following politics and perhaps more so than ever. Whereas the Democrat bias against them is very different. Now, there is an element where, because of their ideologies, they have different things that they distrust. Right? Conservatives have a tendency to distrust government based on their political theories. And liberals have a tendency to distrust businesses based on their political theories. And both of them <laughs> both have good reasons to distrust. There's good reasons to distrust both, mm-hmm. but they emphasize their one and they and, – and Republicans always paint businesses as the solutions. Democrats always paint governments as the solutions. But that's not necessarily the source of the bias here. That is an actual difference in in political ideas just manifest without much nuance. The way that Democrats tend to demonize Republicans makes a lot of sense when you see the progression that often happens. And we've talked about this before, where you move from a small city to a big city. A lot of America is rural. A lot of America's population is rural. 
They go, they get educated at the university, because that's the direction social pressure has been pushing people for a long time. You can't go to you can't go to a public school without being told on a regular basis that the future is in college for all those who can go. Mm-hmm. And they go to college, they learn all kinds of things that they didn't know. They learn that their parents have a number of superstitions, essentially. And they have a number of traditions they've picked up from their family that are based on on those superstitions. Some of them have a religious basis, and they may so they may take the step that many have taken in academia lately, where they become full-on atheists or agnostics, and they reject religion categorically. Even if they don't, they'll find that their parents didn't know everything they thought they did. Now, of course, this is a perfectly ordinary experience. But for people with a certain temperament who are already pushing against things, the people who by temperament are looking forward and are and want and are open to new experience, the temperament that in a lot of cases is merely what the progressive party is, mm-hmm. <laughs> just as mm-hmm. the Republican Party is a temperament that focuses on tradition. This group sees this as a revelation that proves that the, all of their biases were right. Just as a Republican might go to university, right, and see all these all these corrupt things and <laughs> confirm their biases. Mm-hmm. This group sees this as a revelation. And with the revelation that the most educated people that they have met, the most brilliant minds they have encountered, agree with them on all their biases, they assume that stupidity is the primary problem with Republicans and that it's a lack of education. It's a belief in these superstitions that they're behind the times, mm-hmm. right? They're living out there on their farms and they're in this, this kind of caricature of what a Republican is and where they get their ideas. They have science and data on their side against the superstitions and traditions of their fathers. And if you can't taste the arrogance that would breed in you if, that, if you believed that, the way that you would view your opponents as intellectually inferior, right? if, you, if you thought that myth was the way things actually were, that the universities are offering pure truth, you are taking that truth, and it's countering the traditions that you grew up with, and now you see the world clearly, and they don't, and you have to enlighten them, right? That's your task, is to enlighten and, and show the Republicans the truth and the error of their, of their traditions. And you can see that written all over the COVID-19 pandemic and how they acted. The way that science was touted as this thing that explained X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. and anyone against X, Y, and Z was counter science, despite the fact that X, Y, and Z have now fallen. <laughs> science had proved there was no, there was no, uh, <laughs> science had proven that lockdowns were the way to go, despite the fact that prior to this, science had actually shown the opposite, as we talked about in our episode, the, the, the pandemic guidelines. We had pandemic plans based on scientific studies, and they indicated things other than that. But as soon as political necessity came in and the liberals were on one side of this political battle, they assumed science was with them. Even when it wasn't, mm-hmm. they assumed that the reasonable people were all there. Even now, when the reasonable people, the quote reasonable people, the, the people that they were looking to for guides, have changed their opinion on a number of key things. Wearing masks outside, being outside in general, opening schools. Whether it, it was caused by animals, which they were 100% sure it was, despite the fact they didn't have the evidence to prove that at the time. Or whether it's come from a leak, which is looking more and more like the most likely, which has always been the most likely explanation, but which is, as the other hypotheses have been falsified, is basically the only remaining explanation with any significant evidence to it. 
the important thing, at least for me to remember with with COVID and how the left acted with regards to COVID is not just that they knew they had science on their side, but because of that, that knowledge, that arrogance, that that science and facts were on their side was the complete and utter dismissal of any naysayers, any disagreement. Yeah didn't just mean that you were on the wrong side, but it meant that you were just stupid. And you could see that not just in terms of, I mean, in terms of you can look at, you know, the scientific articles that were posted on CNN and many other mainstream sources, you know, dismissing the the many people out there who were arguing anything contrary to the main narrative. And all the way down to, to the micro level where individuals were so dismissive of any alternative because they already they already had the right and that's where that that intellectual arrogance stepped in because the thing is is that science i mean we use the word science a lot but science is about this, the discovery of truth you know science is about learning and understanding and experimenting and growing but intellectual superiority is not about any of those things Intellectual superiority is not about learning. It's not about discovery or experimentation because you already have the right answers. When you have the right answers, you no longer are looking for anything else. And as soon as, right, as, right. Soon as you reach that point, it's no longer even about science. It's about, it's about something else. And that's what you see. I mean, a great example of, of this dichotomy between the the intellectual superiority of the left and the the conspiracy theories of the right is if you go back to the debates last year between Biden and Trump you they they were great archetypes for these two ideas <laughs> because when Biden would get up there in those debates and talk he was so dismissive of anything Trump said like he would shake his head constantly like oh oh Trump you poor orange-headed fool if only you knew any of the truth you would have a chance here, but you just don't. And then Trump on the other side was like, ah, Biden, everything you say is a lie. Everything the mainstream media says is a lie. And I'm the only one who has the truth because I look outside the box. And that's how they both talked in the debates, right. completely talking <laughs> past each other because they're operating off of these, these ideas that do not allow for any kind of discussion as exemplified in those debates. <laughs> those debates were so bad. Can we never reference them just because it hurts me physically to remember them? <laughs> I'm just kidding. If it, whatever else happens, like if there's been talk that, that uh, Trump will run again in 2024, and if it comes down to more debates between Trump and Biden – <laughs> I I'm it's gonna be really hard. It's gonna be it's gonna be really hard. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is is that those debates do highlight how how ineffective operating from from either of these worldviews can be when it comes to actually communicating with someone from the other side. Right. And there there is a solution. I mean maybe maybe we don't need to communicate with people from the other side. And you should split the country in two. But if you're not going to do that, right? If we're not going to go our own ways and live in our own worlds, if we have to live in a world together, which apparently is is every political topic, as everything becomes political and everything is ultimately decided by one of these two groups, 
you have to get to a point where you can talk, or as we've said before, this only goes worse and worse and worse, and it culminates in, and it will culminate in bloodshed eventually. I'm not saying that's a near future thing. But if you think you can consistently demonize somebody while telling the other side, your teammates, that you are right about everything and they're wrong about everything and they're just evil and ignorant and we have to save them from themselves, if you don't think that eventually that leads to the kind of arrogance where you say, we're going to save them from themselves, even if it must be by force, then you should study some of the times where that has happened in history, because this is what it looks like in the early stages. Well, and Dan, as we've had these two episodes, and we've talked about both of these sides, the more I look at it, the more I realize that even though the origins for these two worldviews and these two reasons to demonize the other side are so completely different. You know, you've got this intellectual superiority on the one hand and conspiracy theories on the other hand. In many ways, they are very, very similar, especially in terms of the net result. You know, the net result of both of these worldviews is that, is that I have the truth and you have no way of reaching the truth, you know, for different reasons, but I have the truth. And it's not that you're missing the truth. It's that the truth isn't even on the table for you. And as long as, as long as that's the case, there's going to be that disconnect. You know, Dan, earlier you mentioned how, how Democrats see businesses as being inherently evil and how the Republicans see government as being inherently evil. And that comes up again and again and again in debates, in discussions, in legislation, and there never seems to be any way for them to get along because they're two diametrically opposed views. When in reality, the system that we have now is fueled by a relationship between government and business that is toxic and destructive, and that if you open your eyes and look at it, you can easily see, okay... None of this is good. This is all clearly a problem in terms of this relationship between business and government. But in order to see that and say that, you have to surrender your pedestal. You have to surrender your, your intellectual superiority or your intellectual superiority in form of conspiracy theory, which is, which is fundamentally the same thing. And no, neither side's willing to do that. You're, yes, it would... They would lose political points in some game that that ultimately doesn't go anywhere. But but I'm not. But Dan, I'm not talking about politicians here. My, I mean, my yeah. primary focus, for me at least personally, with these two episodes, is about the individuals, the individuals, and the worldviews that we as individuals have, and how that shapes how we view the world. Because when it comes down to it, whether you live in the United States or you live in you know, communist China or North Korea, governments stand and businesses stand, everything that might possibly oppress you in any way stands because we allow it to. You know what I mean? It's not just democracies that function by consent of the people. All governments, all institutions function because we allow them to. And that is as true here as it is anywhere else. Which means that it's that it's up to us as a people. And the reason we as as Americans don't get anything done and continue to circle the drain consistently is because of this great divide. 
because the more and more people talk about it, the more they're convinced that there is no common ground. And that is just so far from the truth. It is just so far from the truth. Dan, you, uh, you shared a podcast with me, and I, and I went ahead and listened to it. And it's a, it's a discussion that Jordan Peterson has with this young woman who escaped from North Korea when she was a teenager. And she talks about the experiences that she had in North Korea quite recently. She's, she's in her, her late 20s, and so she's, she's young. So the experiences she had in North Korea just happened. As, as you and I were growing up in the United States, she was growing up in North Korea. And hearing her dis- describe how terrible living conditions are in North Korea currently, how truly oppressed those people are. And I was thinking about that as I prepared for, for this podcast, this episode, as we're talking about these two parties. And I keep thinking about the fact that both sides are so convinced that there is no common ground, that it's us versus them, and that's the only way we're going to make it. When in reality, you have much more common ground with the other side than you realize. So much of what you care about, what matters to you, are the same things that matter to them and the same things that they care about. But we keep getting caught up on on our differences and expanding those, and we keep getting caught up in these worldviews that are full of half-truths that distort the other side, like the business versus government discussions, so that we can never actually reach an agreement, so that we don't realize that the true enemies are not each other, and and that the the true enemies are are those people who are actually trying to oppress us like what's happening in North Korea you know i mean there is true evil out there <laughs> yeah. there is yeah. there are people who are who are hell bent on power above all else and we do nothing about it cuz we're too busy bickering right there are groups that are that are getting favors they shouldn't have, right? Classic corruption that happens on, a, on an amazing scale that's codified into our law. We're not talking like under the table, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. money changing hands. We're talking like laws passed that favor such and such group or such and such union or such and such business. And that happens all the time. That's, that's, it's written all over our 70,000 pages of tax code. And it's written all over our <laughs> a number of other legal areas. Uh, you, you know, you've got a great point. I, I was always struck with the, uh, in 2008, there was the big crash. We're in wars in the Middle East. And you get the Tea Party people out protesting in front of federal reserves. Mm-hmm. And then you get a bunch of liberals out protesting in front of various businesses that yeah. are bailed out. Mm-hmm. And if these two groups realized what you were just talking about, if they could, if they could see the legitimacy of each other's claims for a moment, Things would be much better off if they could, if they would stop demonizing each other and start actually looking at the evidence that the other side has for these things. Because the truth is what you were describing. They, these two groups work together. Where does the new money from the Federal Reserve go first? It goes to buying up bonds of businesses that are struggling, mm-hmm. right? large businesses. It goes to bailing out groups like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. And this is a relationship <laughs> that screws over everybody else. Mm-hmm. It comes at the expense of everyone else. I want to mention a few ideas about academia. There are misconceptions there that create this illusion of superiority that I think it could be helpful to discuss 
because it may convince a few people to take closer look at these things, rather than rather than falling into the assumption that the things they're being told actually are science, or the things they're being told because they're from an academic background, you know, have the legitimacy they think they have. Academia is a strange place. I spent an enormous amount of time there. I'm relatively young. But one of the things that's interesting about it, and there, there are institutions that vary, of course. There are schools with different ideas. Academics has become surprisingly homogenous over the years, surprisingly similar. People are beginning to have more and more of the same opinions. Now, this would be a good sign if what we're talking about is the way to solve a mathematical equation mm-hmm. or a general sense of, of what's required to build a building that stays up and that doesn't fall over in a strong wind and doesn't, <laughs> doesn't spontaneously burst into flames in the heat of summer. But once you start to see that in other areas... But Dan, Dan before you even go, go farther than that, my wife is taking a, a chemistry class right now, and, and she's, she's telling me stuff about it, and she's talking about the, the development of, of understanding what's going on inside an atom, right? And, mm-hmm. and talking about the different things that they've learned and about how there's so much they haven't learned yet. And so they have theories, and they have theories right now. They have an understanding of the atom right now and how it works, but they know that understanding is not complete. They know that there are parts of it that could be completely wrong. They, this is this is their best guess, and they're and they're constantly working to reevaluate it. And they're like, we've done these tests, and it's this theory has held up in all these different ways, which is why it's still a valid theory and one that we put a fair bit of weight into. But we still understand that there's all of this that we don't know, and that keeps. It keeps them open a surprising amount, you know what I mean? That that even in even yeah. in these these hard fields, these hard scientific fields, there's still questions that are open. I mean, you talk about mathematics, and I mean it's being expanded upon. Ideas, new ideas are being found on a regular basis, and that's it's not set rules. I mean, arithmetic hasn't changed fundamentally, but, right, but things right. are changing. It's not stagnant at all. No, you're absolutely right, and I'm glad you pointed that out. Mathematics, you would think if there is a field that we've solved the problem, literally, it'd be mathematics, and we haven't. Theoretical mathematics, even, pra- even new practical ways of solving problems mathematically are, are being developed. What we, do our, we do our kids a disservice, I think, in some ways by accidentally presenting the impression that science has arrived. Mm-hmm. Science has not arrived. The world is still a mystery in so many ways. And that's, that's exciting. Yeah. There's, an ex- there's an excitement to science when you get to the edge of it. So often we're learning the history of science or old ideas and, or we're learning things that, uh, that are pretty firm. But at the edge of it, there is a lot of unknowns. I'm glad you pointed that out. There, there should be, I can imagine a lot of children, if introduced to science in that way, would be, would be much, much more, more likely to become scientists, right? And be like, wait, wait, there are things we don't know and we've got to figure them out. And especially you get into biology. Biology is just so complicated, so complicated. But then you get into the soft sciences. You get into, you get into the realm of the humanities. You get, you get into sociology. Into sociology. You get into psychology. I heard a, 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 someone speaking from within social, social psychology specifically, and they were talking about how there, there were something like two things that at this point they're sure they've discovered in that field. <laughs> <laughs> but they've discovered, they've claimed to have discovered over the years, thousands and thousands of things. 
that you will hear reported in popular news, you know, and where they tell you about how you should live your life and give you advice, be like, science discovered this. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out those things, they didn't discover those things. They can't confirm those things. The tests are not replicable and so on. And psychology is a, is a world that we are, in some ways, we are still children in the world of psychology. And in a lot of these other, there are many things which we know to be false, but are still popularly taught in academics. To give just one example, the idea of a, that, that children are a blank slate and that they learn aggression as they get older is entirely false. They are not a blank slate. They come in with clear tendencies. Some of those tendencies line up with gender, another thing that's, that's often rejected by mainstream academics. And aggression occurs so early in the child, you begin to develop the capacity for aggression and for anger as a baby long before you can speak. Infants get ticked. And sometimes they're crying because they're ticked, right? They're just livid. And if that doesn't, every time I think about that, it cracks me up a little bit. (laughs) Of course, they can't express that anger very effectively. (laughs) But toddlers have to be taught generally how not to use the, you know, how not to harm people and to, and to be civilized per se. I don't like that term, but that's, that's kind of the idea. The idea, and that, that's an old idea that children had to be civilized rather than rather than that society corrupts children, right? This is Rousseau in some sense. Rousseau believed that children are a blank slate and that you can, they're actually remarkably adaptable and so on. Karl Marx picks up this idea and he runs with it. He believed that people were legitimately interchangeable based on their environment. These are demonstrably false at this point, still very popular in academics, still an assumption in most cases, not people, people who are looking at them know that this is false, but so many others down the chain assume it's true. And they build entire political philosophies off of ideas that we can prove are false. And this happens far more often in academics than you would think. And part of the problem is that people have become so specialized that they know nothing outside of their specialty. A person who is trained in X is completely incapable of doing Y or judging whether Y is good. Mm -hmm. I I was at a political uh, seminar where various professors had come from various places to discuss certain political ideas. In this case, it was inequality. And they were, they were talking about how one professor was presenting his arguments about political theory, but he didn't have a background in political science. And he was drawing on numbers that had been developed by political scientists and sociologists that were wrong to then justify his political logic and theory. And he said at the beginning of his speech, I know there's been some controversy about, about these numbers. I can't speak to those numbers, but what I can speak to is what they mean if they are true. And then he went on to to describe it. And of course, he actually didn't even frame it that generously. I gave, I gave the disclaimer I wish he had given, but the numbers he had, he was using were entirely false, but he wouldn't be capable of reading them by, according to him, not capable of determining that for himself, but he had based years and years of work on the assumption that they were true Mm -hmm. and they were not true. And this happens in so many fields where they're pulling from somebody else whose work they can't verify and building theories and building ideas and and adding to it. And in social science, this is a serious problem, especially since the incentives in academics are such that if you do a new study on something new and you you appear to have discovered something new, that's worth a lot of money. Mm -hmm. You will get grants and things for that. Mm -hmm. But the incentives are not there for someone else to come along and say, let's test this and really see if that's replicable. No, there's no incentive for someone to come along and disprove 
an old theory that's now holding up 20 new theories that all are currently being funded that would all have to be thrown out if the 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 pivotal theory that holds them all up is proven false. And so when that theory right. is being looked at, no one's interested. Because there's right, no incentive right. to destroy that theory because it ruins all of this work that we've done. Right. This, this is why some of the basic ideas about racial bias have taken literally 50 years before, this, we, before people were like, wait a second, these original studies are not replicable. There is a problem here. Something here is not quite right. It's not entirely garbage, but it's off. And in a study that off a little bit is everything. Mm -hmm. And that's where we were talking about tribalism earlier. Tribalism corrects a lot of that. And even to this day, I don't think that, that uh, how to really define tribalism is well done. What we have is a general idea that, uh, that is fairly consistent, but not always. And that's a, that's a serious problem when so much of political theory is built off of these, right? And so many of the political biases, often that are still continued in politics departments, in academics today, are built off of them and have not yet realized that those are wrong and have not yet adjusted. And this is, this is where, as far as I think what you were saying, Brad, is, is really useful because it's one link in a chain, right? Mm -hmm. And everything's building on these. And you may not realize that the link broke a long time ago, that it turned out to be false a long time ago. And nobody realizes it because that's not their expertise. They're in a different field, mm -hmm. which in some ways points us to at least part of the solution of academics. Now, liberal arts gets a bad rap, and deservedly so, because often modern liberal arts programs are garbage. But one thing in defense of liberal arts is that liberal arts at least tries to look at the big picture and to, and to get people educated enough that they can look at a variety of disciplines. And an interdisciplinary education is at some level critical for understanding in depth things as complicated as politics that are drawing on psychology, that are drawing on philosophy, that are drawing on ancient religions and, and, and history in minute detail and whatever we can get from political science and the data there. And all these other things come together in a way that any one expert in those fields is likely un incapable of interpreting mm -hmm. and would say so, right? They'd say, that's not my, it's not my thing. Liberal arts includes a study of each of these things, at least to some degree. And so you can start to see the big picture. You can start to see the connections, the interdisciplinary aspects. And there are programs, good programs, even in sciences that aim to be interdisciplinary, but they are often so riddled with biases and so riddled with pure propaganda that they become Instead of a way for you to get above the noise and see clearly, they become a way to recruit you to a specific political idea and a way to indoctrinate you, really, in a certain perspective of the world that you can then imply. And I think critical race theory is case in point on this and what that looks like. There's more that we could do to, to help the higher education system. Dan talks about you know being indoctrinated. And, and one of the inevitable problems with, with higher education is the fact that, that when you're studying, you've got a professor who is the one who decides whether or not you get a good grade. For the most part, you know, it's up to them. You know, especially, especially mm -hmm. when you're talking about the soft sciences where you're writing a paper that's going to have opinions in it. If those yeah. opinions agree with the teachers, then you're most likely going to get a better grade, which is currently how it's set up. Or at least don't push the envelope too far. There, there are so yeah. many programs right now where they don't reward independent thinking, 
where they re- reward conformity right. above all else, which only encourages the same thoughts to continue to happen versus having professors and departments and whole universities who are interested in finding people who can disagree with them but do it well. And that's just right. not something that you see very often anymore. Right. And and when you couple when you when you say that that that's always going to be somewhat of a problem, right? The professor has biases and they're going to and they have to work actively to to not grade according to those biases. But in a world where in in an environment where universities have accepted that to say some ideas is a hate crime. Mm-hmm. Where to where to discuss opposing opinions or to state them or to talk about them or to show anything that is in favor of them is considered an act that would get you that could get you fired and will get you reported by the students. Um, you can get into uh, there are a lot of university professors who who have talked about this, many of whom have been fired and then talked about it later. Others who who've talked about it anonymously in polls of professors to see if the professors have started censoring themselves. And this is a trend that has gone up and up and up as we get into these, as the value of free speech has become questionable. Mm. This indoctrination happens in programs where people are explicitly rejecting the benefit of having counter opinions, the benefit of being exposed to both sides, where they think it's actually evil to expose someone to an idea that's wrong because that idea is inherently evil and hurtful. And in that world, your own opinions is all you have left, right? Bias is being explicitly endorsed. The, the people who believe this thing are being endorsed to grade accordingly yeah. and to hammer people who disagree and to ban them or to, to censor them and so on. Yeah, and which is why the intellectual superiority is so common because it's being actively produced. It's being actively yes. produced yes, because there is, the, there is the, the good argument and any other argument is not just wrong, but is actually evil, even to utter the argument. Yes. I, I knew someone who would intentionally challenge this, and and I consider myself a, a generally open-minded person, but, but he pushed me in ways I didn't expect. You know, for example, he would raise the question, is slavery actually a bad thing? And he would pose it legitimately and say, okay, look, maybe we should be pro-slavery in general, not just talking about slavery in the past, but maybe slavery is not the worst thing in the world. And just hearing, hearing someone say that in person made me cringe a little bit, right? And, and <laughs> yeah. hearing me say it right now on yeah. the podcast probably made you cringe a little bit. And that's <laughs> what I'm talking about. That's the idea that is being proposed more and more often in universities is more and more things are taboo like slavery is where even mentioning it even having a discussion of it is off limits when in fact we would all be better off having these awkward discussions because when the thing truly is terrible it's okay for someone to propose arguments for it or vice versa, or however you want to, you know, whatever the argument is, because there are plenty of reasons that slavery is morally, ethically, and in every other way, reprehensible. And so having someone discuss it is actually not a bad thing. And that's what we need more of, is being willing to have these discussions. When it's conversations like that, and I know the person you're talking about, I think. He's um, a mutual friend. Yeah, it, it is shockingly helpful. And if you haven't been in, the, in a discussion where someone is really pushing your assumptions and really is willing to challenge your arguments 
against them. And obviously this, this person didn't believe that slavery was good and wasn't making that case. But, but by pushing against it, what they do is they refine your arguments against slavery. They refine the clarity with which you can argue against slavery, the, your conviction that slavery is wrong, your capacity to explain it and to persuade others that slavery is wrong. Was all enhanced. Right. All of this improves, and none of this can come without an open discussion where the opposite side is presented and often defended. I found that a lot of the best, my favorite professors of all time, would defend the author we were reading, period. And they would defend him against all attacks. Because everyone who reads a classic book or who reads a, a political book, what they see is what's wrong mm -hmm. with it. But this author, this prof these professors would then counter and they'd speak for the author and they'd go, no, 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 look, this is what they'd say to that. And this is how they would argue that. And this is why, this is why what you think is the coup de grace, the, the finishing blow that, uh, that makes it so you don't have to pay attention and you don't have to think this casual way that we discard ideas we disagree with is not going to be enough in this class. It's not going to be enough in this room and it's not going to be enough to carry you through the world. Your biases and the two seconds of thought that you've given for most things is not going to be enough. And they made that, and they made that very clear by often shutting down a number of students, not, not unkindly, but firmly mm -hmm. until they could get better arguments. And then they would, and then the discussion would further develop. So that leads us, Dan, to what we believe is at least one solution, one cure, not just to intellectual superiority, but to the lack of connection and and understanding on both sides and that is legitimately and honestly engaging with people who disagree with you because so few are willing to do it because it is painful it is not it's <laughs> you know dan talked about discomfort before and discomfort just means pain i mean that's it's just another <laughs> word for pain and it is pain if you've ever spoken in public you understand that that pain, even though it's not physical, is very real. And and emotional pain is is not to be ignored or slighted. It's a it's a real thing and it, it causes people to make choices all the time. And one of those choices is to not engage with people they disagree with because it's not fun. But it's incredibly beneficial. As Dan was talking about, engaging with those professors who had maybe even had the same beliefs as you potentially, but chose to argue the other side and to argue it well, to argue it reasonably, and to have a meaningful discussion has so much value and allows you to understand and allows you to connect with the person you disagree with and you gain so much more from it. Even if the person you disagree with is fundamentally wrong, you're still going to be better off engaging with them and having a real conversation. You'll understand better your side and their side when you actually listen and understand. Yes, and that, that in some ways, it, and that requires a little bit of humility. That requires, that requires an assumption that they're not bad actors, that they're not ignorant, and that they're worth talking to and they have ideas worth listening to. And if you do what Brad said, you will find that. You will find that. You will find sincere people working on the other side, in this case, if you're liberal, working with the Republicans, who have a lot of wisdom that they can share with you, who have a lot of things they know that you don't, who have a lot of insights and a lot of things that will, that if they don't change, they may not change your political affiliation and, and major opinions, but they will refine them. And you'll find in the discussion areas 
of agreement and a mutual respect that you won't get from a distance acting like you're going to get sick just from hearing the yeah, ideas. Yeah, you'll never get that mutual respect when you're sitting in that echo chamber. Yeah. Yeah, and this seems particularly dangerous on the on the liberal side in that they tend right now to avoid even the side of the idea. Right? They're not just in an echo chamber shouting down the idea. Even discussing the idea is anathema. And that's a serious problem because if you're not even willing to hear the idea spoken out loud, then there's no hope of having any kind of discussion about it. Yeah, it's been an interesting trend one of the, the, where liberals have stopped debating in almost all circumstances, with the exception of running for political office. There, there are exceptions, but, a, but most of the, at least at the level of news, debates between them have stopped happening. And understandably so to some degree. I, I think the debates that they were having were not productive. <laughs> but at this point, it's, it's, because they, it's because they fear the association of even being in the same room as people who think these ideas. And at, at that level, it's ideas are not some disease. Mm-hmm. But if you treat them as such, then soon you won't have any anymore. <laughs> right. If you, if you treat them as a, as a disease to be avoided, the only thing you can fight them with is, is what you're fighting them with is prejudice rather than knowledge and rather than mm-hmm. a, a mutual understanding. Absolutely. And with that, thank you for listening. This has been episode 45 of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcast apps as well as on our website, rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com, where you can reach out to us as well as support us via a link to Patreon. You can also email us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com. And you can reach us on all the social media apps facebook instagram and twitter for any comments questions or anything you might want to say we'll see you all next week till then